0: Well, good morning, Calvary Quakertown. It's good to have you join us, and we will all be joining you not too long from now. And so uh, please uh, be ready for us. We will be arriving in Mass not too far into the future. Thanks for the invitation, and we look forward to joining you all up in Quakertown. Well, you've just been reminded in the short video that we're in a series called Top Ten. And we're looking at really familiar verses, verses, familiar passages, familiar concepts... But concepts and verses that are often misunderstood, sometimes because of their familiarity. They're so commonplace, we tend to not think about what they mean or wrestle with the context. What we're doing in the series is we're picking out those 10 verses, those 10 concepts, and then we're asking three questions. So what's going on? What's the context about? Where does the verse appear? What actually is said and what's not said? Because sometimes we fail to look seriously and take seriously the actual words that are there. And then after we've done our homework, we say, so what does it mean? And we try to answer the question, how can we live out this principle in our world and in our situation? Well, a couple of weeks ago, Carlos spoke and he said, I'm going to speak on the most famous, familiar verse in all of the Bible. And he spoke on John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. And that's true. That is the most famous, the most popular, the most familiar verse in all of the Bible. If your context is the church. Almost everybody that goes to church knows about John 3.16. Most can quote it. Even if you can't quote it, you kind of know what it's about. Most churches or many churches could use John 3:16 as their motto or their mission. But you know what if you pan back from the church and move from the church to the culture at large, I don't think John 3:16 would be the most famous anymore. We're going to look this morning at the most famous verse when it comes to our culture. And that verse is do not judge. Does that sound familiar? Don't tell me what to do. Don't judge me. Who do you think you are pushing on, pushing on me what you believe? Isn't that the most popular verse in our culture? So we're going to kind of do the same thing. We're going to look at that verse, which actually appears in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, for verse 1. We're going to look at the verse and say, well, what's going on? What's actually said? And then what does it mean? So we're going to ask the three questions, seek to answer them. And I think by the time we wrap it up, you'll maybe learn a few things and look at that principle a little differently. Now, I don't make any promises on the quality of this message. But I do make this guarantee. If you stay awake for the next 30 minutes, you will remember what this message is about. All right? And so if somebody asks you tomorrow or Wednesday or Friday at work, I understand you went to church last Sunday. What was the sermon about? You will know if you stay awake. So we're going to practice. Ready? Um, We're all going to say together, do not judge. Ready? Say it. (laughs) I'd say it with enthusiasm now. (laughs) Now, just to make sure you get it, we're going to say it with attitude. But you need a little help to say it with attitude. Take your index finger and hold it up right in front this little light. Right, Hold your index finger up. And then we're going to say do not judge with attitude as we point to the people around us and remind them that they should not judge either. Ready? Let's do it. Do not judge. Do it again. Do not judge. Isn't it interesting? We can even be judgmental when we're telling people not to judge. Yeah, the irony of seeking to live out what Jesus says. Well, the first couple verses of Matthew 7 read like this. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now I want to remind you right up front, do you see that? No exceptions. Zero tolerance. Do not judge. Jesus does not say, now do not judge unless the person is really, really annoying, then you can... He doesn't say, no exceptions. Jesus doesn't give us the exception, if the person has really deep flaws, then you can judge them. Zero tolerance. Jesus doesn't say, you can judge if they have really weirded out religious ideas. That's not what he says. Jesus does not say, well, do not judge unless the person has different sexual values than you have. You can judge them. Jesus doesn't say... If they're of a a different political persuasion than you are, you can judge them. Do not judge. Do not judge if they have lots of piercings and holes in their bodies and ink under their skin. Do not judge. Jesus does not say, you can judge people if you do it a little bit at a time. You can judge people if they deserve it. Don't judge too often. Don't make it a habit. But if the person deserves it, you can... No exceptions. Zero tolerance. What's the message about? We've only been into this thing five minutes. You've already said it four times and you forget. Let's try it again. What's the message about? No exceptions. Zero tolerance. Isn't it interesting that when you speak about judgmentalism, Christians and church people quickly come to mind. Not in the sense that they don't judge, in the sense that they do judge. In fact, David Kinneman wrote a book, Un-Christian, a number of years ago, and he surveyed non-churched people. And do you want to know the number one characteristics, characteristic that non-Christians said represents Christians? The number one characteristic that non-Christians said Christians exemplify the best? Judgmentalism. In the face of a clear command, no exceptions, zero tolerance, do not judge, non-Christians look at Christians, non-Christians look at us, and they say, the number one thing I think of when I think of you guys is judgmentalism. Wow. How did we get that reputation? We earned it. We're often judgmental in the midst of a command and a Savior who lived a non-judgmental kind of life. Imagine a couple scenes with me, if you will. First scene is uh, somebody uh, walks down the aisle, a Christian person, right? A church person walks down the aisle of the airplane, and they got the aisle seat. Thank you, Jesus. You sit down. No one's in the middle seat. They pray a little prayer. Uh, May no one sit in that middle seat because I want to relax on this trip. Well, eventually, the plane's filling up and they see this person walking down the aisle and they can tell by looking that the person has some issues, or so they think. That person's kind of disheveled in appearance, actually a little dirty as the person gets closer and closer. The distinct smell of alcohol is kind of in the air. And the person must have a medical marijuana card because something else is in the air too. Well, when you know it, the person says, I think that's my seat. And the religious person says... Oh, wonderful. And the person comes in and sits next to them. And uh, you, as a, or this person, as the religious person, shakes his hand and says, I'm really glad to have you. I want you to know I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Now, let me ask you, would the person in the middle seat think and say this? I'm so glad I get to sit next to you. I was really concerned that I was going to sit next to somebody who may judge me. You see, you don't understand, my life is an absolute mess. I'm in a financial pit, my marriage is wrecked, I'm a moral mess, my life is out of control. I'm so thankful that I'm sitting next to a religious person because I know you'll never judge me. Would that happen to you think? In the context of do not judge, my guess is if the person was sitting next to a religious person, a Christian, he would fear... That he would be judged. Interesting. Think about someone coming into a church. Not our church, of course, into a church. Um, and a person stops at next step space and says something like that. Would this ever happen in a church? Hey, I just want you. I'm so glad to be a church. My life is an absolute mess. You may not be able to tell by looking at me. I've got some deep issues. I've got major problems. In fact, I've got issues and problems I would never even tell my counselor. I wouldn't tell my AA group. I wouldn't even tell my deepest, darkest secrets to my dog for fear my dog would never come near me again. But I'm so glad to be in church, I will shout my problems and my deep faults to the hilltops in here because I know in church I'll never be judged. Would that happen? Huh. Funny, isn't it? In the face of Jesus, no exceptions, zero tolerance command, do not judge. Christians tend to be the most judgmental of people, and churches tend to be the most judgmental kinds of place. Funny how that works, isn't it? Maybe sad how that works, isn't it? Well, Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. This is the third chapter, and Jesus is going through the values of the kingdom. He's going through how he wants his followers to live, and at the beginning of chapter seven here, he spins out three things that were not to do in relationship with other people. And the first of those three things is do not judge, right? The first of those do not judge. So what exactly is being said then? Well, uh, you need a little bit of a, of a vocabulary lesson, right? Here's what's going on. Most words do not have a single meaning. They have a range of meaning. For example, if I say the word dog, that does not have a punctiliar, singular meaning. It has a big meaning, right? Maybe some of you have a little gross rat dog. and others you've got a big, manly dog, right? Well, they all kind of fit into the dog circle. The dog range is a big range, right? Well, the word judge has a range of meaning. One set of words or one set of meanings goes something like this. The word judge means to assess, to evaluate to discern. That's not what Jesus means when he says, do not judge. We know that that's not what he means because if you read through the rest of the chapter, even in Matthew 7, you'll discover Jesus tells us you have to make assessments and evaluations. You have to be discerning in order to do what he says. He says, there's a narrow gate, And there's a wide gate. Well, you've got to make an assessment and evaluation to know to go through the narrow gate, not the wide gate, right? So it can't be make no assessments. Right after that, he says, there are true true prophets and there are false prophets. You have to be discerning enough to know who the true prophets are and the false prophets are. Follow the true prophets and what they say, not the false prophets. After that, he talks about there are good trees and bad trees. Well, you have to be discerning and make some assessments to know where the good tree is and where the bad tree is. He says, build your house on solid rock, not on the sand. You have to make some evaluations and assessments to know where to build, right? So clearly Jesus does not mean never assess, never evaluate, go through life without making any discernment. That'd be ridiculous. He never calls us to that. And do not judge does not mean that. But then there's another part of that range of meaning that speaks to condemnation and rejection. You see, judge can mean you condemn someone. You reject them. That is what's forbidden. We are not to condemn and reject anyone. In fact, isn't it interesting that Jesus tells us not to judge? He regularly makes assessments. He does evaluation. He's very discerning. He calls us to assess and evaluate and be discerning. And yet he's the most accepting, the most forgiving, the most gracious, merciful, loving person that's ever lived in fact the only people that jesus condemned were those that were rejecting and condemning others in god's name they're the ones he stood against think of some of the groups of people and some of the people that jesus accepted and welcomed: gentiles samaritans moral rejects spiritual nightmares people that were living morally um, scandalous sexually scandalous kind of lives Jesus doesn't condemn them and reject them. He accepts them and welcomes them. He assesses and says, you know, you need to make some adjustments in your life. But he never condemns and rejects. He accepts and he loves. Think of it kind of like this. Suppose you go to the dentist. and If you haven't gone for a while, you need to go. Well, if your dentist is worth his salt and worthy of his pay, he needs to make some assessment and do some evaluation. And maybe he says things like this. Whoa, your gums are a little swollen there, pal. Um, You ever think of using some floss? That'd be a good idea. Before you leave, I'll give you some. Remember, brush, brush, brush. A couple times a day, that'd really be good. Um, You need to take care of these teeth. Oh, a couple cavities. I'll tell you what, if you have another half hour, I'll work on the cavities, we'll get the salt. You'll be leaving in 40 minutes, good as new. Floss, 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 brush, brush, brush. Be on your way. That is assessment, that's discernment, that's evaluation, that's not what Jesus is condemning. Well, suppose you show, the same guy goes to his dentist and his dentist says this, Whoa! This mouth is a nightmare. I've seen better teeth on a 40-year-old comb than you've got. Man, do you know what a toothbrush is? I better put another pair of gloves on before I come near that mouth. I may get some kind of disease or something. You don't have oral hygiene. You have oral gene. That's what you got. I never want to see you again. You go to some dentist that's willing to take his life into his own hands to work in that disease-filled mouth. Get out of here. I never want to see you. That's what Jesus is condemning, right? The dentist that assesses and evaluates is doing his job. The dentist that condemns and rejects is doing what Jesus forbids us to do with anyone we come across. We need to live through, live life, assessing and evaluating, being discerning, but never condemning and judging. Welcoming and forgiving needs to be the strategy. See how that works? That's what we need to be doing. Well, the next uh, couple of verses that follow the "Do not judge" tell us something else in how we need to relate to other people. So, "Do not judge." Remember, let's try it again. What are we not to do? Do not judge. Do not judge right? You're going to remember that this week when somebody asks you, "Do not judge." Then we come to these weird verses in 3 through 5, specks and planks. Let me read them to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hmm, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the while there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What in the heck is going on here? Okay, well, let's, let's see if we can figure it out. How many of you have ever had something in your eye? Raise your hand. All right, all of us. Good. So you know what's going on. When you have something in your eye, it really irritates, right? A little tiny thing, you can barely see it. But it feels like a giant boulder, doesn't it? Your eyes water, your nose runs, you're in no shape to do anything, right? You run to the bathroom screaming, telling your wife to get in here, the world's falling apart, you got to work on this thing, you're rinsing it with water, trying to get it out. One thing's for sure, if you've got something in your eye that's really irritating, a little tiny speck or something in your eye, you are in no condition whatsoever to pick up the tweezers or the Q-tip or something and help somebody get something out of their eye. You need to first get that sucker out of your eye, then maybe you can help them. See how that works? All right, now, let me back up from that. Each one of us can divide the world into two different groups. I'll I'll use me. I can divide the world into two big circles. This right here would be the me circle. This is the Charles circle, right? You have your own circle. This is mine. This is the Charles circle. Um, Charles is in the me circle because it's my circle, right? Over here would be the everybody else circle. Everybody else. This is the them circle, that's the me circle, right? Me and them, me and them. Um, You have a you circle, right? And you circle is kind of you in the middle, and everybody else is in the them circle. So I'm in your them circle, and you're in my them circle. You're in your circle, I'm in my circle. All right, so here's a question. Which circle are you in control of, or am I in control of? Which of those circles? I'm in control of the me circle. right? Who at, which circle am I not in control of at all? The them circle. right? I really can't do anything about the them. I do have the ability to do something about the me circle. Right? So I'm responsible for the me circle, and I need to work on the me circle. I can't do anything about the them circle. I see what's over there, but I need to work on the me circle. We all agree so far? OK, good. Now, here's the second question. Um, since you live in the me circle with yourself, and you ever notice you can never leave the me circle, right? Like, like you're always in the me circle. Like I, I never get to leave me. I, I, sometimes I wish I could, but I can't. Like if I go over, I'm, I'm in the me, I can't leave. So I'm with me in the me circle every day, all day. I'm rarely in the them circle, right? But I live in the me circle 24-7, 365, always Now, you would think, if I spend all of my time in the me circle and very little time or some time in the them circle, which circle would I know the flaws best in? You'd think the me circle, right? Since I live in the circle, you would think, I know the flaws of the guy in this circle a whole lot better than I know the flaws of anybody else in any circle. But isn't it interesting? That's not how it works, right? I often overlook all of the flaws in the me circle. But I can see with crystal clarity all the faults of those jokers in that circle, right? In fact, I, can look, I see lots of flaws and faults. Oh, sorry. Um, but in the me circle, I should see all... In fact, it's even worse than that. I often, when I recognize a fault or a flaw... Of me in the me circle, I often blame someone or group in the them circle for the problem I have in the me circle. Now, you're not that wretched, right? But I, I do that, right? And so, yeah, you're right, I've got this, but it's my mother's fault. She cleaned the house way too much, that was the problem. That's why I'm so screwed up. It's my wife's fault. It's my kids' fault. It's my parents' fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my employees' fault. It's the team's fault. It's my neighbor's fault. It's anybody's fault but my fault. Oh yeah, that's specks and planks, right? The little specks in our eyes should appear as planks because they're in the me circle. And the specks in the them circle should really appear as specks because we only see them at a distance. Isn't that funny? Uh, I read a story this past week about a guy who had to go to traffic school. Not because he was learning how to drive, because he got caught speeding when he shouldn't have in a school zone or something, he wound up going to traffic school. You have, you have to do that. I, I had to do that once, sorry. I'm, I'm confessing on the me circle, right? It wasn't recently. So the guy shows up at traffic school, and he sits there, and everybody had to go around the circle, there were like 15 people there, I guess, go around a circle, and you had to explain why you were in traffic school. And he was like next to last. Every single person had a reason why they did what they did and really weren't guilty. Every single person. And he, he said to himself, boy, I'm, I'm the only one that should be in this group, right? Everybody else shouldn't have been here, right? The cops were stupid. The thing was in the wrong spot. The light really was yellow. Right? All these. Things. Finally, when it came to him, here's what he said. I was speeding 25 miles an hour over the speed limit and I got caught. That's why I'm here the rest of the group started to applaud. The first time somebody said they really deserve to be here. I broke the law, I got caught, that's why I'm in traffic school. The rest of the group couldn't believe that somebody, agreed, uh, somebody admitted to what they did. That's kind of life, right? We should know the specs in our eyes the best. They should appear as planks because they're in our eyes. We can't do anything about the them circle. So why do we spend so much time and energy trying to fix and fi- fix and work on the stuff in the them circle and we just ignore or blame others for the stuff in the me circle. In fact, here's the point. The first thing Jesus says, do not condemn and reject. Do not judge. And the second thing is, do not critique and blame. That's the second. If you want to live as Jesus is calling us to live in this life, don't criticize and blame Own your failures, own your difficulties, own your faults. Don't blame others for them. Work on the stuff in the me circle and pray for the stuff in the them circle. It'll make a world of difference in how we live. Well, then we got one more thing in these verses. A really weird verse shows up in chapter 6. It's all about pigs and pearls, pearls and pigs. Now, here's what it says. Do not give dogs what is sacred, do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. What the heck is that about? They're pearls and pigs. Here's the way this verse is often understood. Incorrectly. Let me say it again. This is how the verse is often misunderstood. I am the possessor and the keeper of the pearls." You can tell by looking at me, I have pearls. There are some people in this world that are unworthy swine. And I need to recognize the unworthy swine as I go through life. And I need to protect my righteous pearls from the unworthy swine. And I would never want to give my pearls to the swine or the dogs. There was once a little boy was asked, so what does this pig pearl thing mean? The little boy said, here's what it means. I should never share my toys with my sister. That's it. Notice what he's doing, right? I've got the pearls, I've got the toys. My sister is a swine. And I need to protect my pearls from my swine sister. That's, what I need. That's how the verse is often misunderstood. That's exactly opposite of what Jesus is saying. That's not only wrong, that's completely opposite. Let me explain it this way. The animals that are mentioned, right, dogs and pigs, they were were both domesticated animals in Jesus' day. They kind of lived, you know, around the house, maybe out in the yard, had a little house, a little pig pen, um, you know, kind of come in the house. They were domesticated. If you have a domesticated animal, what is the responsibility of the owner to do what for the animal? To feed the animal. Right? It's your job, right? So um, if you've got a dog, you feed the dog dog food or you feed the dog scraps from the table when your wife's not looking. right? You feed the dog food, right? Things that the dog If you've got a pig, you need to feed the pig, right? So eventually the pig will feed you. You know how that works, right? Kind of circle of life thing. And you have to feed the pig. So what ha- how many of you have a dog, by the way? Okay, good. good. Um, so if you uh, go over to your dog's bowl, and you're the owner, right? So your dog doesn't feed you, you feed the dog, right? you got to go over to the refrigerator, wherever you go, and you get the food. What would your dog do if you took some of your wife's jewelry and put it in the dog dish? The dog would look up like, well, what am I supposed to do with this mess, right? What? Huh. The dog does not say, jewelry, Wow! I can take this to the pawn shop, and I can buy dog food for five years. The dog doesn't say that, right? The dog says, huh, what am I supposed to do with this? How many of you have a cat? Sorry. (laughs) Now, if you have a cat, and you put, you know, your wife's necklace or whatever in the cat dish, what does the cat, the cat takes the necklace and hides it because the evil cat thinks like this. I don't know what this necklace is for, but nobody else is going to use it either. And they take it and hide it, right? But whether it's a dog, or it's a cat, or it's a pig, the owner's responsibility is to feed and provide nourishment for the animal. If the owner provides something that's valuable to the owner, but absolutely inconsequential of no good at all to the animal, that's not an animal problem. That's an owner problem. Verse 6 of Matthew 7 is not speaking primarily about the pearls. It's speaking about the stupid owners. The dogs and the pigs in Matthew 7, 6 don't have the problem. The owner has the problem. The owner is giving to the dogs and the pigs what they don't want and what they can't process. That's the problem. It's an owner problem, not a pig problem. The pig is just doing what pigs do. The dog's just doing what dogs do. It's an owner problem. So let's kind of back it up and begin to talk about what it means. Suppose you say, well, I'm not stupid enough to give my dog my wife's jewelry. But i really like to have a Christian dog. So I'm going to give the dog the Bible. So if you go home today and rather than feeding the dog, suppose you put your Bible in the dog bowl uh, your dog may eat the Bible, right? I, that won't do him any good. It'll ruin your Bible, right? And some of you have dogs that have eaten lots of things, right? Shoes, doors, furniture, pillows, blankets, right? Because they're, tra- they're trying to access stuff that they really can't access. Oh, okay. The Bible won't work. It's probably too big. I know. I'll give my pig a Jesus bumper sticker. I'll kind of slip it into the food he's eating. Then maybe it'll work. I'll get him a Jesus bond. Oh, I know. I'll lecture my dog and pig on the 15 reasons why they should believe the resurrection. That's what I need to do. The animals are going to say, what? So what's the point of all that's going on in verse 6? It's like this. Don't force your wisdom on people that can't receive it. Don't force your Christian values and principles on people that can't process them. You know, it happens often in marriages. You know, maybe one spouse is a Christian, one's not. And so what do they do? They leave the Bible laying out. They say, oh, here's a podcast you really need to listen to. Hey, here's a bumper sticker for you. Hey, by the way, here's this great thing you need to... If they're not ready to process, you're you're acting like an owner giving to someone what they can't process. It's kind of like the law of supply and demand. We should be supplying only what can be processed. We should be supplying only what's demanded. So as we're going through life loving and serving people, appropriately a time and place may come to process a question, to wrestle with an idea, but don't be a pearl pusher. All right, That's the point. So here's the three things that Jesus says. Number one, don't condemn and reject. Number two, don't criticize and blame And number three, don't push your wisdom off and your Christian values and all that stuff on people that are not able to understand them and process them. You know, sometimes the things that we do and feel really good about doing as Christians is really nothing more than pearl pushing that's forbidden by what Jesus says. We need to be coming alongside people, loving them, serving them, right, building relationships with them, learning their story but not pushing pearls, not taking your wisdom and somehow saying, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need. There's a law of supply and demand that has to be respected. Well, you may be saying, uh, all right, so how does all this work when we think about our relationship with, with God and with Jesus? I read a story about a Thomas Watson, not Tom Watson the golfer. Thomas Watson used to be CEO of a IBM. And uh, one of Thomas's executives, back in the early 60s, I think it was, committed a $10 million dollar error. That's when $10 million was a lot of money. An executive committed a $10 million dollar error. The executive wrote out his resignation and went to uh, CEO Watson's office. Watson said, come on in. And the executive went in and laid his resignation on his desk, and he said, I guess you want my resignation because of the loss I caused the company. He said, resignation? It just cost me $10 million to educate you. Get back to work. Maybe you look at your life, or maybe you look at the life of someone you know and you've been praying for. And it's easy to say you know what i've done such heinous things that i have to be disqualified i just have to be disqualified and you're half tempted to walk up to jesus and give him your resignation you say jesus look i'm nothing but a failure i'm trying to look at all the faults in the me circle it's easier to do the blame shifting thing and talk about the them and the problems they have but when i'm serious and look at all the mess i'm in in the me circle You would never accept someone like me. And Jesus says, fire you. I invested my life in you. I invested a crucifixion in you. I invested a resurrection in you. How about if you accept my forgiveness and get back to work? That's the good news, isn't it? Jesus doesn't want our resignations. Jesus wants us to live in the me circle, being honest, admitting our faults and our failures, and recognizing that Jesus' mission, his life, his death, his resurrection, brings us forgiveness and acceptance. Then he says, Now go live like that with the people you know. And I have the sneaking suspicion if we lived in relationship with people around us like that at work, in our neighborhoods, and our families, people would be a whole lot more demanding of a spiritual conversation than they are if they feel like they're being nothing but condemned and judged and getting bumper stickers and Bibles and tracts thrown at them. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't condemn and reject. Don't criticize and blame. And don't be a pearl pusher. Just follow me and do what I do with the people you interact with. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks that our faults and our failures do not disqualify us. That's what the mission of Jesus is all about. So as we admit our shortcomings, our failures, our foibles, our faults, we recognize that we need Jesus' life and death and resurrection more than ever. And as we cling to those things, we see how we should live with other people. And so, Lord, help us to not be condemning and rejecting. Help us not to be blaming. And help us not to be pushing our wisdom off on other people that are not able to receive it. Help us to love them and serve them, being ready to speak and act when it's appropriate and when they can use it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.